Hey everybody, welcome to the week of Film Tech for September 19th, 2019. This week we're cleaning up some more IPC news with the Roto Light X2 and ProRes and Blackmagic RAW building on their market share. Uh, we're also looking at Endcrawl. Not a pure tech story, but a fascinating story, on which is the perfect plug for my book. Ooh, hold up the wrong side of the book. Pliny is one of the interviews in this book. Pliny is the founder of Encrawl. This is my book, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers. I mean, if you can't plug your book, why well, have a podcast? We're then going to do Gear Cage, which is going to be the Pavo Nanlite. And we have a Hey Professor from Chris Hillock, another Twitter Hey Professor. All that this week on the Week in Film Tech, so you don't have to read the blogs. You can be out there making movies. All right, first up in our headlines... I mean, our first headline should be that my new book is out because I'm really enjoying holding my new book in my hand. That should be my first headline. It's not. I'll save it for the end when I plug. First headline, Roto Light launches the X2. So there's a, there's a whole host of interesting things in this headline. Roto Light, if you don't know them, they make LEDs. They're really, they got famous for like a very affordable LED ring light. Uh, the ring light's a light that goes around the lens. They didn't really show up a lot in narrative production. You see them occasionally, but they're all over music videos and commercials. A friend of mine who's a gaffer tells a really funny story, and I can't remember the music artist, but he was putting a roto light on the lens, and the artist like looked at the lens and was like, I like that. That makes me look really good. Keep that on. And uh, it's just funny how like artists have a relationship with the people who light them and how this particular artist like got to know a ring light and liked it. So roto light seven years, six years ago, launched a ring light. Very popular. Rotolite's been very much in the, like, indie affordable space. You'll see it on bigger shows, but Rotolite doesn't really live in that, like, airy skies panel space. Until this week, where they decided to, like, take a clear shot right at, like, the airy sky panel, light panel universe with their new X2. If you know the, like, sky panel S60, uh, very common sky panel, like, $6,500 unit, everyone loves airy, uh, it's a soft box. It's like two feet by one feet, something like that. I don't know the exact specs, and it's probably in metric because they're German. Rotolite English, also probably metric specs. That unit, super popular. You see them everywhere. They're all over the place. The Rotolite, similar form factor, right? The X2, but they are claiming for like a 30% price savings, like 6,500 versus like 4,700. For that price savings, the Rotolite, 4,700, it's going to be twice the light output as an S60 while still being full RGB WW. So you've got your full tungsten control. You can dial in whatever RGB color you want. I haven't used the Rotolite app, and I'm going to say this. The SkyPanel app, Stellar, is the like gold standard right now. So I don't know if it's worth paying 2000 for the app. And also with the SkyPanel, you have to pay extra for the hardware that uses the app, and I don't think you have to with, this, uh, with the X2. So it's like another 1000 on top of the SkyPanel to use the app. But... You get a whole lot of things. And then you've got this stellar feature, which is variable diffusion. So this is going to be both exciting and less exciting than we think. The number one thing that you can use to diffuse your light, let's even go more context than that. What is diffusion? Diffusion softens a light. Um, we've all seen things where a light is really hard and like, like this light is not the softest light in the world. And because it's not the softest light in the world, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see some of my pores. I actually kind of like a hard light on myself because I, I think it like makes my beard look cool. Because um, you see all the detail in the beard in a way that soft light, you sort of blur out some of that detail. A soft light, very, considered very flattering. A hard light, not necessarily as flattering, but you can cut cool shapes with it. These are already soft units, sky panels, light panels, because they're big, 
soft units. You know, a hard unit is like a little point source unit. So they're they're soft by design because of these big flat panels. And the number one thing you could do to make them softer is to make them bigger because the physical size of a light is what actually makes it soft. That's why the softest unit is an overcast day where basically the sky, it's a 60-mile source. The sky from one horizon to another is all soft light, and that's the softest light you can get. So this variable diffusion is not going to be dramatic. It is not going to be taking it from, like, completely hard 50-50 shadows to, like, beautiful, rappy, soft light from all directions because you're not changing the physical front size of the unit. But what it is doing is it's using sort of a uh, newer technology. I think I first saw variable... Uh, diffusion only a year or two, and I haven't really used it in the field very much, but it's using variable diffusion built into the light unit for a little bit of softening in the light unit. And, you know, they have some nice videos behind the scenes showing you from full soft to field diffusion, and it is a noticeable difference. Is it night and day? No, but it is a noticeable difference. And it's a good thing to remember that cinematography is often about very small tweaks, right? I used to do this lighting exercise with my students and it's one I think everybody should do early in their career where we would do something and we would we would do like a quick and dirty, like here's half an hour, let's just get this light set up. We would always do it with like two people sitting across from each other and two back keys. And we would do it really fast. And it was like, all right, let's look at the monitor. Does everybody feel like we could just shoot right now if we had to and we were under the gun? And everyone's like, yeah, I can see their faces. It looks fine. Go. And then we would spend the next three hours tweaking. And we'd be like, oh, all right, well, it looks too bright on this person. So what do we do here? And what do we do? And it would just be we wouldn't change the shot. We just tweak for three hours. And it was always sort of amazing to watch students' minds get blown. And honestly, everyone's well in my mind get blown when a student would be like, hey, what if we tweaked like this? Where you're like, it is that last little detail work that makes cinematography. It's those billion little tweaks where you're like, ooh, what if we do this? And what if we do that? So having that little tweak built in the Roto Light X2 is actually a nice feature. You're, if you're expecting it to change from a like film noir to a 70s, lighting and the snap of fingers, it's not going to do that because it's not changing the physical size that dramatically. But within its physical size, you do notice a little bit of a tweak in the diffusion. And I think that's a really cool feature. If it really gives twice the output of an S60, if it works with an app without requiring extra hardware, and if the app is good-ish, or if a third-party app, I know I talk about this every week, but if like Luminar, which I'm playing with next month, really does get good... I think Rotolite has really stepped up. And the interesting thing about that to me is it's a move moving in on SkyPanel. Like, as a brand, Rotolite has occupied a very, like, cheap's the wrong word. I hate using the word cheap. Affordable, indie, we can have it, you see them around, people I know buy them, whatever. I don't know anybody who's personally bought SkyPanel. SkyPanels are rental items for everybody I know and work with. And they're moving on that space, and they're keeping the same brand. A lot of times when brands, like, try and move up market, they'll like create a special up market brand. And Roto is like, Roto light is basically being like, no, you guys like our ring lights. You like our soft lights. Why shouldn't we be able to make a big punchy soft led and go head to head with sky panel. And I, I respect it. I think it's swaggy. Uh, so good for you. Roto light. Uh, I've been emailing the company. They're going to re review units out in November in December. So hopefully I'll be able to either visit one in New York or get my hands on one for a couple days and play with it. I'm very curious to see what they've got going there. I think it's going to be super cool. Up next out of IBC, a little bit of context. So for most of the history of shooting raw video, it was always proprietary to a brand, right? If I was shooting area, I was shooting area raw. If I was shooting red, I was shooting red raw. If I was shooting Canon, it was C raw. Uh, it was always proprietary to a camera brand. There was an open source format you could use called Cinema DNG, but no one used it because the files were super big. 
the original black magic cameras that when they shot raw, they shot to that. But like the files were so big. It was, it was never worth it. Nobody did it. It was not a thing. I'm sure someone on Twitter, will be like, I shot my feature film documentary on cinema DNG. And you know, unless your cousin is George Lassie and you're getting deep discounts on Lassie drives, it just doesn't, it, it made no sense. Uh, it was not a good cost benefit in the last couple of years. Both Pro- Apple with ProRes came out with ProRes RAW, and Blackmagic came out with Blackmagic RAW. And these are both formats that are designed to be a RAW format that offer the benefits of RAW, the flexibility of RAW, but in a usable file size and open, meaning various camera manufacturers could support it, various editing platforms could support it, and it's sort of an open, common platform. Are we going to see Red or Airy using ProRes RAW or Blackmagic RAW anytime soon? Probably not. They have pretty established workflows around Airy RAW and Red RAW. And at those budget levels, people will bend to their workflow. But that's not really the competition in the market. The competition in the market is the affordable space. Because the thing you've always got to remember is like Final Cut 7 started in the affordable space. And then so many people were using it in the affordable space. And its tool set got so good that the Cohen brothers started using it and House of Cards used it. Because so many people knew how to use it. The, the affordable space often trickles up, right? Media Composer still owns studio movies, but you're starting to see studio movies cut Premiere, fu- cut Final Cut 10. I'm sure we'll see one cut Resolve within the next year because everybody gets really good with those skills and then people want to use the tools they're already used to. So both Blackmagic and ProRes, I think they legitimately want to make workflows easier for people. I don't think these are cynical business decisions, but in terms of a cynical business decision, it's good to be the common format keeps your business alive to be the common format. Uh, you get to make tools and charge license fees and all that. For the longest, for about a year now, if you shot ProRes, you had to cut Final Cut 10. Final Cut 10 is getting much better. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still pretty limiting to restrict it to just Final Cut 10, which is a software that like not a lot of people use and very few people use in color. If you use Blackmagic RAW, you had to use Resolve. Less of a problem, because if you shot Blackmagic RAW, you probably bought a Blackmagic camera because that's the main platform that captures to it. And Resolve, even if you aren't going to edit Resolve, you're still going to finish Resolve the vast majority of the time. Most projects, cutting Media Composer, finish Resolve. Cutting Premiere, finish Resolve. Sometimes you cut Final Cut 10 and finish Resolve. That's not unheard of. It happens. So we weren't too worried about that. But it would still be nice, especially because Blackmagic wants to play well with everybody, to be able to use it in other platforms. So just within the last week, Apple announced ProRes RAW will be in Media Composer and Premiere natively now. And Blackmagic, if you download the Blackmagic 1.5 update, it includes plugins for Media Composer and Premiere to use Blackmagic RAW. So now you're a Media Composer editor, you're a Premiere editor, you're getting Blackmagic RAW footage, you're getting Premiere uh, ProRes RAW footage, you can bring it right into the project. I will say what I always say with Media Composer, which is it's a great software, but it really likes it best if you transcode everything to DNX, MXF files. Yes, technically, this means you can bring in your Blackmagic RAW files natively, and I know that they officially support it. Man, Media Composer, just transcode everything to DNX. You're so much happier if you do it. That's just how Media Composer is designed. But Premiere is designed to be a little more flexible, and on a tight turnaround job, you're shooting Friday, you're delivering Monday, the ability to bring in those Blackmagic RAW files natively and just start cutting them in your Premiere timeline and then kick an XML over to Resolve for finishing will be nice. But we notice there's a big gaping hole here, which is still no ProRes RAW support in Resolve and still no support for Blackmagic RAW in Final Cut 10. The Blackmagic RAW in Final Cut 10 thing might never come, and it's probably fine. Um... If you are a Final Cut 10 editor, you probably have, you know, Resolve is free. You can download Resolve and transcode all those Blackmagic RAW files straight over into 
ProRes files to cut in Final Cut 10. That's not a hard step to take. Most people currently shooting Blackmagic RAW are probably comfortable just sticking with Resolve. But I gotta say, I think it's a glaring frustration for a lot of people that we don't have ProRes RAW yet in Resolve. I don't think it's deliberate. I'm pretty sure Blackmagic will do it. I think it is that of the four companies, and I don't know the market caps on these, but I'm gonna say Apple, Adobe, and Avid are bigger than Blackmagic. I'm just going to say, Avid and Blackmagic might be the same size. I don't know. Avid's big. We forget how big Avid is. They have, like, government contracts and military contracts and hardware contracts, and they sell those servers, and Avid's big, and they've been around a long time. Uh, so Blackmagic is the smallest of those four companies. We forget it sometimes because their cameras are everywhere, and the 4K and 6K are such buzzy cameras, and you see them all over the place, and schools are buying the so Mini in droves. But they're still the smallest, which means they have the smallest development team. So getting that support out for Blackmagic RAW for Premiere and Media Composer, bigger priority for them. Getting ProRes RAW integrated into Resolve, probably a lower priority. They're also probably looking at the volume of ProRes RAW that's getting shot yet, and they're still seeing it's pretty pretty much a small party. Uh, Atomos recorders do it, and the DJI does it. Atomos is a very common recorder. There's a Shogun Inferno 7, or no, just Inferno, the 7 to the new one. Uh, in front of me right now. Super common. People use them. But right now, it's mostly an SDI thing. You need an EVA1. You need uh, like FS7 Mark II, I think, does it. And you don't see a lot of ProRes RAW. So I'm guessing Blackmagic is just like, we know ProRes RAW is coming and we're going to support it eventually. They're probably dragging their feet until more HDMI workflows show up until the S1H and the Nikon cameras that let you record RAW over HDMI, which is, I think, going to be the big revolution in ProRes RAW, and you're going to start to see a lot of ProRes RAW when my little $3,000 camera or my little, you know, uh, affordable camera, you start to see a lot of people out there shooting with those cameras to ProRes RAW, then I think Resolve will support it. I don't think it's a deliberate strategy move. Blackmagic and Apple work together closely all the time. They work together on the eGPU. So my guess is that it's more about just bandwidth. It's just how many people they have working at any given time. So yeah, that is something to think about. So my next bit of tech news, I, this, I swear this was already news before I went ahead and I, I it was like in my list to cover this week. And then my book arrived this morning, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers, Making a Living as a Creative Artist in the Film Industry. I have an interview with this guy, Pliny and his partner, Alan, who founded this company, Endcrawl, in there. But even, I knew my book was coming soon. I'm going to talk about this anyway. Endcrawl, if you guys don't know Endcrawl, Endcrawl has done a raise. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit because I think it's interesting. So the film industry and the tech industry seem related in a lot of ways in that, like, you know, the people dress a lot of like, you see a lot of like beards and dark button up shirts and all birds. And, you know, there's like a lot of like cross pollination and cultures between like film workers and tech workers. We all work stupid long hours that we shouldn't be working. They're coastal driven jobs. Um, so there seems like there's a lot of relation there. And I think we're starting to increasingly see new media companies doing interesting things in the film industry, having sort of techie kind of moments. And I think Endcrawl is a really fascinating story. If you enjoy what I'm talking about right now, Pliny wrote a big, long article on Medium. It'll be in my email this week, laying out like the whole story of raising their money. I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why is for those of you who've used Endcrawl, I first used Endcrawl in like 2013, six years ago. It's a seven-year-old company, and they just now raised. And I think it might be a surprise. If you've been an Endcrawl user for as long as I have, they just feel like part of the wallpaper of the film industry now. When you are doing end credits, you just use Endcrawl. For a bit of context, it used to be end credits were a place where you could make a lot of money as a post house. 
And the reason why is because there's so many revisions and end credits. In fact, right before I went to record this podcast, I was double checking some end credits for typos for a thing that we're about to render just to make sure that I have everybody's name right and the diacritics and nothing is misspelled. And I caught that we hadn't credited the colorist. And these credits have been vetted like four times by multiple people. The colorist watched these credits in a recent color session, and we didn't catch the colorist wasn't credited. So end crawls have always been end credits have always been a way for post houses to make money because as a post house, you charge every time someone does a render, and you know you would regularly go to twenty, thirty renders, not because you did something wrong, but because they would give you a list, you would make an end crawl, they would realize, oh, I forgot these three four four PAs, and I. You know, I put I put the, this person's name wrong, I spelled this thing wrong, and it would take so many revisions to get it right. Endcrawled is a flat fee service where you literally, you get a Google Doc, and it's built with Google Docs, which we all know how to use. You fill out the Google Doc, and you can hit the render button as many times as you want. It's a flat fee. There's no discounts, <laughs> which is fine, because the flat fee, you pay it once, and then you can do 50 renders. So as you keep double-checking and watching a render, or you have a test screening and someone at the test screening is like, how dare you spell my name wrong? You can keep just doing more renders. Endcrawl is brilliant. But Endcrawl has been entirely bootstrapped for the last seven years. Bootstrapped means they just built it out of their own pocket, and they both kept their day jobs. Uh, I don't know if I can say what Pliny's end paid up was, but like he had a day job in the film industry, working in an office in midtown Manhattan, living, commuting to the burbs. And uh, in his spare time, around his day job, they built Endcrawl for seven years before they went out and raised money. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of people have this idea that, like, I have an idea and I raise money for that idea. And I think a lot of film people are really used to that because you're like, you write a script, you raise money for that script, and then you go do it. But tech is this interesting space where it's like, build a thing. See if it works. Can you get customers? Are you making money? If you're making money, then you can go raise money to grow. There are some tech ideas that you absolutely need money to build before you can raise money. But the vast majority of tech ideas, Facebook had customers already using it before they raised venture capital. And that's like a really common thing. And so if you have an idea for a thing, if you're like, I want to do X, uh, I've, I've talked about a bunch of ideas that I think need addressing in the film industry on this podcast. And I'll keep talking about more as they arise. Build a thing. Just like build a thing. Like Pliny and Allen built it. And like they could, they had the skills to do it. But they've also learned a whole bunch of new skills along the way. And then after seven years, they finally went and they raised money. And they raised money with a mix of customers and venture capital and media people. And now I think they both quit their day jobs and they're on end crawl full time. It's a really interesting Medium article. If you're into, like, the nuances of fundraising, it's worth taking a look. But I also thought it was an interesting sort of tech thing because it's the week in film tech. And it is a tech company raising money within the film industry. So I thought that that was really worth taking a look at this week. All right, so that is the headlines. Up next, Gear Cage. All right, Gear Cage this week. We skipped it last week because IPC had too many things. We're going to talk this week about the Nanlite Pavo tubes. So if you haven't used a tube light, tube lights, there are a bunch of them out there. Quasar makes them and... Uh, Astera makes some really popular ones everyone loves, the digital Sputnik Voyagers, and now there's some sort of affordable ones coming in. Usually they've been around the like $750 to $1,000 for a four-foot tube, and it's usually a four-foot tube that has a battery in it and some way to control it and some way to wall plug it. And then and they're super popular. If you've seen a music video or John Wick, they're all over those movies because they're so flexible. You can just, you know, you can run power to a tube light if you want, 
but there's a battery in it. So you can also just like, oh my God, I need to get this shot right now. And I'm missing a little thing right there. You just run out with it. We're going to green screen shoot this summer. And there was a point where we were like, oh, that's just a little too dark. And it's like, we could put a light on a stand and run a cable, or we could just flip on a light and stick it there. So tube lights have become very popular for that purpose. Nanlite, which used to be Nanguang, is a Mac group company and Mac group you know, it's Conic and X-Rite and all these companies. Uh, it's part of the Mac group, and they are running with these Pavo tubes now. And one of the things interesting to me about the Pavo tubes, first off, waterproof. That's a nice perk. They're in, like, a nice rubber encasing, and they feel very durable. And um, there's, like, a, a durable thing. And so, like, you know, I didn't test them by dunking them in a pool, but you, you should feel totally fine, like, running around a beach, running on a rainy chute, working near a pool. And I bet if we look, someone on the internet has put them in a pool and they've been fine. So it is a four-foot or a two-foot tube, battery built-in, weatherproof, durable. At either end, there are clamps that like are, are hexagonals that are designed to fit in like a Cardellini or a Mathalini. They're pleasantly durably made. And they're like $400 for the four-footer and like $250 for the two-footer, which is a significant price discount about, around everybody else. But I think that they might be a great buy. And here's why I think they're really interesting. The app is useless. Don't even bother with the app. Ignore the app. The benefit you're getting out of those $750 to $1,000 light tubes is app control goes crazy. Uh, a lot of them don't even have buttons on them, right? Uh, some of them have like one button on them. But the vast majority of them, they're really designed to be rigorously controlled by the app. So you can do crazy things like, you know, uh, a firelight effect. Or like in some of them, you can load up a video and then it turns that video into lighting effects that move around on the tube. And you've got all of that stuff built into it. And that's a lot of what you're paying for. But I don't know how much that's what you use. Like I have one of my favorite lights I have right now is a Hive RGB, uh, the 100C Wasp light. Love it. Love that it's RGB. Play with the color all the time. I rarely use any of the automation. I will plug in a color and then leave the color. So I open the app, I plug in the color, I leave it. I open the app, I plug in the color, I leave it. Would it be nice when I book like a big commercial job to have it be part of the big party with everything else and lights are all changing? Yes, but in realistic day-to-day -day life for the things I tend to shoot a lot, those features make great advertising features, but I don't actually use them much. Now, if I were a Super busy music video DP. I don't know. <sighs> I still think the NAN lights are kind of interesting because what I love about the NAN lights, I'm going to tell an anecdote about this. I have a friend who's a DP who was telling me a story that he was out on a show and it was all sky panels and sky panel obviously has that great stellar light and none of the electrics or the bests or the gaffer would open stellar. They do everything by hand on the unit because they're just used to that and it feels faster and they've gotten in that habit and the Pavo tubes have really great on-unit controls. They've got two little rocker knobs. You can do one for color and one for dim. You've got eight buttons. You can be switching through modes and switching through colors with physical buttons you can see on the thing. I think they even might have emailed me and been like, don't bother with the app. Because I never thought about the app, I, and I could do everything on the physical unit. It was so fast. Oh, I need a red backlight. Boom, red backlight. Stick it up in a rafter, red backlight. And it was just like so freeing to think about them like that. Yes, will occasionally you book a job where you're like, okay, and now I need this like red light to chase its way 360 around a car, and so the lights need to be white, and I need to like rip, rope them all together? Yeah, maybe. I don't book a lot of those jobs. People who book those jobs should probably buy like Asteras or Quasars or, or Rent or use Sky Panels or something like that. But like, you know, thinking about, oh, I could have four of these for 1600 bucks that I just have in a bag. 
that I just like whip out whenever I need them, I think is a really useful thing to think about and consider and going app free because they have robust controls on the unit. I have some problems with the controls. There's one thing I wish they would fix. So there's two knobs at either at one end, which is great. I love the knobs. It's like nice physical control, depending upon what button you press and what mode they're in, they do different things. You can use the knobs to like cycle through like cop car mode and pre-built firelight mode and all that stuff. And like the knobs are great. But I wish you could like push a button in to lock them. They have like a yoke around them, so you're not you're not likely to like walk past it and knock it out of alignment. Like, it's just, I would feel more comfortable if there was some way to, like, lock that knob in place. Like, either I push it in and then it's locked and it doesn't move, or, like, there was a flap or something that covered it. Because, you know, having that knob and then you set it to exactly what you want and then you, like, put it in a C-stand and you, like, walk away. It just didn't, that was the, that was, like, the one little hiccupy thing in the rest of it. Um, Other than that, there were a lot of little things that, like, I thought were really nice. The dirt, the Plastic tubes were very durable. I, I used them on a shoot with some high school students, and high school students run around and stick things wherever. And um, it was like teaching a, a lighting workshop to high school students, and they were like able to like use them and feel flexible about them, intuitively figure out the menus really quickly. And it was a, a really nice thing. And so I've found them. I've been testing them for a couple of months now, and I was really impressed with the flexibility of the unit without a robust app interface. There are going to be things you cannot do without that app interface. But I wonder, are those things things you do very much? Uh, and yeah, I'm going to tell the story. I'm not going to say the brand of the light, but I bought another tube light. One of the features was you can load a video into the tube light. So I did a test where you could load a video into the tube light. And it worked, and the tube light was like moving, and you could see the video on the app, and it was like moving. And then I taught a demo in a class with putting the video in the app and And it was like the light was moving in sync with the demo. And then I did a shoot, having tested this twice now, where we were comping something green in behind an artist in a music video. And I was like, oh, and this wasn't make or break, low stake situation. But on the shoot, I got out the tube light and I pulled up the app and I put the video in and the app just crashed. Same video, same whole thing. And I was like, I I thought it would be so cool. I could play the same thing and the light on the actor's face would be in sync with what we're going to comp in behind them and it would be so cool. And like, worked great when I tested it. Worked great in a class demo. Just didn't work on set. And that makes me terrified about apps. It It just makes me feel very, you know, makes me very nervous to engage in any kind of like, like I'm not in a place right now where I feel like I would bid a job that depended on that. Right, Like the kind of stuff they did on Gravity where they had whole light walls that were playing back video to make the composite better. I'm not going to bid like a little low-budget job confident that I could do that and include in the bid, oh, and then the lighting on the face is going to match what we comp in in the background. I'm just not going to pitch that because I don't feel like there are affordable low-budget tools right now to do that. I feel like there's affordable low-budget tools that promise you they're going to do that, but I haven't gotten them working yet. Obviously, they had all the tools they wanted on gravity and it ended up looking great. So yeah, Nanlite Pavo tubes. I had real fun with them shooting the last couple of weeks. I think they've been a real like easy, relaxed thing. You are going to, you know, if you want to be able to make like one end to this perfect shade of pink and one end to this other shade of orange, and then gradually diffuse between the two in sync with like something that's happening in a song. These are not the light units. If you love the ability to be like, oh, I can just throw on a cop car effect with one button and turn it on, or like, I can just turn it pink and tape it to the back wall, or I can just make it the exact green that matches something else and just slide it where I need, 
they're really flexible, fun little units. And I'm excited that there are those tubes at that like $400 price point in such a durable housing. So Nanlite Pavo tubes. Final segment this week. Hey, Professor. Chris Hillock asks, Hey, you mentioned a TCL TV for evaluating your final image. I'm looking for a TV to evaluate final image. Would you tell me which one you have? No, I won't. So uh, I will tell you what I think you should get for a final image evaluation, and that is an LG OLED. I have gotten straight out of the box. I've had LG OLEDs in the C9 series where you literally, like, you take it out of the box, you open up a Klein K10, you probe it, and it's like D-Log E1.9. And anything under two is considered visually indistinguishable from perfect. And then you calibrate it, and it gets down to, like, D-Log E1.2. Phenomenal monitors. Um, they're around $3,000, the, the newest model. But, like, for instance, the newest model are the 9s. The 8s were last year's. The 7 were the years before. I wonder if you could get a C7. You probably couldn't get a new inbox C7, but maybe you could get, like, a refurbished C7 or a, um, uh, what is it, NOS, new old stock, like it sat on a shelf somewhere, um, C7 for an affordable price. That's what I would recommend. A 55-inch or a 65-inch LG OLED C7. I think it, with the 8 series, it was C and E were good, and then I think anything in the 9 is supposed to be really good. I end up using the Cs. That's what most people I know in post houses use. We have four of the Cs. We have two C8s and two C9s here where I teach. That's what I'd recommend. It's two to three grand. I know that's probably more than you wanted me to say. If you are looking for something like under $1,000, I would look at like something like the small HD 7-inch OLED. I know I just recommended a 7-inch monitor, but that monitor is dynamite. It's 7 inches. It's, it's OLED. It calibrates perfectly, even straight out of the box, un- uncalibrated, because they calibrate it at the factory before they ship it to you. So you get it, and it probes under a 2, and it's great. And, you know, if you're just looking for something real, like, I just want to check renders, small HD OLED, seven, 7 inches. You could take it with you on trips. I have. Um, I'm not going to recommend the TCL. I like the TCL a lot. I own a TCL. It's what I mentioned in the Game of Thrones episode that I like watched Game of Thrones and the TCL. And I think you can get the TCL reasonably close. I went through with his color charts and stuff like that. Um, and I got it like reasonably well set up. I don't consider it reference quality, frankly, because I've just never taken, uh, you know, I have my client K10 at the office and I have my uh, TCL at home. Uh, and, and I got the TCL because it was like the best image quality you could get for $500. And I couldn't really convince, I got the 55 inch and I couldn't really convince myself to spend more than $500 for a TV for my house. And then I was surprised to discover that the TCL has really nice image quality. I was prepared to accept like, oh, it's going to look a little worse at home, but I'm just going to deal. I got a baby, like, like, you know, I can't spend $3,000 on a TV for my house. Because when you spend $3,000 on a TV for the office, you're justifying that by, oh, well, I'm billing it to clients and clients are evaluating images with it and it, it's saving me money and lost work. Whereas at home, it's just about enjoying content. So I made it look as good as possible and I was surprised at how good I could make it look and how well I felt like I could get images to reproduce. And I really love the Roku TV interface. I think it's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, for home use, I think a TCL is fine. I don't think the TCL... Roku TV is probably up to calibration standard. Although now that we've had this conversation, I feel like I should drag my Klein K10 home and probe it and see if it is. I bet it's not going to be. And the reason why I bet it's not going to be is because if it was, you would see all over all of the forums like lift gamma gain and black magic forum and all of those forums. My God, I found a $500 TV you can grade with like someone else would have nerded out on this before me. 
I just don't feel like it's quite accurate enough to call it your like reference monitor. But if you can find like a C7 LG OLED, or frankly, if you're in the New York Tri-State area, uh, um, like a Panasonic Pro Plasma, those are only HD and you probably want 4K at this point. But there's still some Panasonic Pro Plasmas around. I still have two. And I think those are still phenomenal looking. Although HD and 4K are different animals. So yeah, I I mean, I, I think I have a 5 Series. I have whatever you could get a year ago for $500 from TCL. You know, if you are looking for like, oh, a home TV that I can feel reasonably confident with a few settings changes, the first thing you have to turn off is the dynamic motion thing. The dynamic motion thing on TCL is real bad. But you should be, you're a filmmaker, you should be turning that dynamic motion thing off on all of your TVs anyway. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say the TS, TCL, I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it for home use. But those were my other recommendations for a good final monitor for reviewing work before you deliver to client. I think that's a good place to look. All right, this has been another week of the Week in Film Tech. So as always, sign up on our mailing list and I'll include links to articles like that Medium interview. Check out my book. Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers, Making a Living as Creative Professional, out from Focal Press. I'm holding a copy in my hand, which you are probably seeing if you're watching the YouTube version of this. You can follow me on the Twitters and the Instagrams and, the, and all of those places. You can hit me up with Hey Professor and uh, enjoy shooting movies. I will be back with you with more of the news to cover next week. Hey.